As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Thanks for having me uh, here today. It's good to be able to have God's word with you. Uh, Ephesians uh, has a lot to say, but in particular, as we live in a society that is significantly diverging uh, from the gospel, a lack of understanding what grace looks like and what it means and the implications for our lives, but particularly as well as we just head into this fragmented individualistic society at the moment. The community is just a, a word that is used often but rarely understood. God's word has a lot to say to this. So um, how about I pray and we'll, uh, we'll get working through Ephesians chapter 4. Father, uh, we uh, want to thank you for giving us your word that uh, it directs and instructs and encourages and rebukes and uh, Father, it shapes both us as your children but us as your people as well together. So we pray today as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, these first 16 verses, that um, we might be challenged as to what it looks like to have unity, to drive towards maturity, and how it is, Father, that your grace uh, shapes both of these things. Amen. Uh, look in, uh, I, there's a guy named Alain de Botton who uh, writes books uh, that really delves into philosophy and makes people who I couldn't understand accessible to people with limited intellect and Queenslanders like me. Uh, and he just writes amazing books. He's not a, he's not a Christian, uh, but he's a very, very thoughtful guy. And he's speaking into a lot of the problems that uh, know Christians are identifying at the moment uh, as we kind of rip churches out of the ground and, and throw them out in our society. And there's a black hole, a vacuum and society's trying to work out what it is we do from this point, like what replaces what the church did previously, what the church did previously was harmful and bad, but a lot of what the church did as well, particularly where they got the gospel right, was good and life-giving. So what do you do in its place? But he writes some books, and he one of the books he, he writes that I really love is a book called Religion for Atheists. It's about what we learn, what we learn from religion without having to buy into their doctrine. And the very first area he turns to in this book, after the introduction, is on community. That's the first thing 
that he picks up on. The first thing, and he starts with this. He says, one of the losses modern society feels most keenly is that of a sense of community. We tend to imagine that there once existed a degree of neighbourliness which has been replaced, uh, replaced by ruthless anonymity, a state where people pursue contact with one another primarily for restricted individualistic ends, for financial gain or social advancement or romantic love. He's saying that we are hurtling towards an increasingly individualistic society but there is still this deep desire, this still this yearning within us for community, to be connected to other people. So he goes on to say this, he says, insofar as modern society ever promises us access to a community, it is one centred around the worship, often, of professional success. We sense that we're brushing up against its gates when the first question that we are asked at any party is what? What do you do? What do you do? And our answer will determine whether we are warmly or conclusively abandoned. And in these competitive pseudo-communal gatherings, he says, only a few of our attributes count as currency with which to buy the goodwill of strangers. What matters, he says, above all, is what is on our business cards. And those who have opted to spend their lives looking after children or writing poetry or nurturing orchids will be left in no doubt that they have run contrary to the more dominant mores of the powerful and deserve to be marginalised accordingly. Does that ring true to you? That rings true to me. That rings true to me. You see what he's saying? He's saying we are taking the need for our community and we are twisting it. So it's about us. We're making it less than it should be. And then we wonder why we're lonely. Now I love Alain de Botton, his writing, he's brilliant. And so many of his observations are insightful and, and fresh and revealing. But I can't help but when I read these books, his books, come to the conclusion that his sense of being able to regain community is still based on me. It's still around me. Communal in expression, yes, but individualistic in fulfilment. Now, you'll have seen as you've been working through the first three chapters of Ephesians that Paul wants us to understand the gospel, this God who has taken us from death to life by his grace and he has made a new people a new humanity who are in Christ and he keeps using that word doesn't he in Christ people who are being built into the image of Christ together who have God's spirit living within them that's the first three chapters he wants to unpack that and he ends that with this prayer of celebration and thanksgiving to God for having done all that in their lives now this second half of Ephesians will begin to unpack what that truth looks like in the lives of God's people what does it look like to be in Christ what does the Christian life look like but he doesn't answer by giving you a few things to go away and consider and and work on over the next few weeks just a, a checklist no He looks out at the sea of God's people in Ephesus and in all the other places he's planted, all the other places the gospel has gone to. And he says, look, if you want to be and you want to look like who it is that God has made you in Christ and who it is he's changing you into, 
You can't do that by yourself. You need each other. That is how God has designed it. And I've just broken this uh, section up, these first 16 verses here, into three bits. I don't always find the uh, paragraphs in the NIV, or any other version for that matter, particularly helpful. And this is one case, so just apologize. I can apologize for the fact that I've split the paragraphs. There's three things I think he says here about unity and diversity. He says Christians have been, been given a basis for unity. That's the first six verses. Then he says Christians have been given the resources for that unity. And that's up to verse 12. And then lastly, he says Christians have a goal for the unity. There's a goal for unity. So let me just open up these first six verses here. If you've got a Bible, please open it. Uh, Please open it. Uh, So you can follow along with me, make sure I'm saying what it's saying. The first thing he says here is that Christians have been given a basis for unity. He says, after these first three chapters of unpacking the gospel and applying it and giving thanks, he says, now that you know that, walk, walk, he says, in the way that is consistent with the calling that you have received, verse 1. And he picks it up again in verse 17. He says, verse 1, walk in the way that's consistent with the calling you've received. Verse 17, don't walk. Like the Gentiles, that is, don't walk like people who don't know God. He's saying, walk in a way that is consistent with being in Christ. Walk in a way that's been consistent with being in Christ. Uh, one of the, the places which I'm discovering is um, with people, no church not being the centre of communities anymore, uh, the, the places which people tend to go towards in Queensland at least, and particularly for, for fathers, for dads, who, um, for my wife, she's made a lot of connections at school, but because I, I don't often do the pick up and drop off, I don't have those connections there, but the sporting club, where my boys, or three boys, um, play, that's the place that I meet parents, and that's the place that I'm seeing, this is their pseudo community now, this is the place they meet people. And they engage and they volunteer and they pour in time and they play politics because you've got to play that somewhere. This is what it is. It's the soccer club. Here's the interesting thing that I've noticed. A few weeks ago when my um, middle son was playing, at one point one of the kids on my son's team tackled one of the kids on the other team, which I think in soccer is legal. You're allowed to tackle. Anyway, it didn't end up so well. They're only eight and so they're kids. They're just learning. But the father of this kid who got tackled was not happy in any way, not happy. Ran on the field, ran at these kids, small kids. He's kind of six foot three, these kids are two foot two, and he's running at them to get to his kid. And these kids are all quite intimidated by this. He grabbed his kids, he started shouting at people, started shouting at the ref, grabbed his kid and ran off the field. Now I know the coach of the other team. And I was talking to him afterwards saying, what are you going to do? Like that's, you know, this is just tricky and awkward and unacceptable. Like the kids are intimidated by this. He had no idea what to do. Upon what basis does he resolve that conflict? What is the foundation for which he can work through conflict towards reconciliation and forgiveness? What does he call that other father back to? There's a code of conduct at the club. Sure, but that father may not have bought into that code of conduct necessarily apart from signing a line. What is the foundation for relationships in that context in an ongoing, meaningful way without reverting into passive-aggressive apathy? 
There's a challenge in there, isn't it? What is the centre of our decision making? What's the foundation of it? Now you can see in verse 1, you can see Paul sandwiches the characteristics in his call for unity. First one, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. The characteristics, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. And he goes back to unity again. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This unity that is, verse 4, one body, one Spirit, one hope when you're called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is this Trinitarian idea to this. That is this Christian uh, doctrine and truth of God being one and three, Father, Son and Spirit. He's saying you have been brought in the gospel into one people under God through one truth. And here are the characteristics that define God's people, completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. They are built on this foundation of being one in Christ. Decision-making boils down to a centre, doesn't it? Like the decision-making is just the kind of edges of something that you hold at your core that's expressed. It's a question of, of understanding what is the centre, what is the foundation that's causing you to make decisions in that way. There was a restaurant down the road from where I used to work called Gum Do. Um, I probably shouldn't have named this because this is being taped. Anyway, it's three and a half stars on Google Maps, so that's okay. Um, but I used to, in my weaker moments, uh, just when I was feeling a bit tired, often on Mondays after a big Sunday, uh, I would order uh, sweet and sour pork and fried rice. Now, the two minutes, I would say it's because I enjoyed it, but really the two minutes of high after eating that MSG-filled container was not worth the three hours of pain that came afterwards. Now, what am I saying there with that? What do I value? Well, I would say, if you ask me, do I value my health, I would say yes. And yeah, I would consistently go back to gum do. Consistently. If you ask me, am I a generous person? I hope I am. I think I'd, I'd want to say yes. But then I catch myself at times thinking, oh no, I just did that because that person would see me. Or I did that. How is it that I subtly let people know that I did that? I think, oh no, I'm not being generous for my sake. I'm just being generous for being known's sake. I say I value my family. But too often I work 60, 70 hours a week. I love my kids, of course. But if I drill down there, what's the basis that I'm making decisions? What am I saying yes to and no to? Well, actually, sometimes it's just that I find a sense of importance in my job. That's what it is. There's, a, there's an underlying, like there's stuff we say on the surface, decisions we make. There's an underlying foundation to how we make things, isn't there? That centre. As we examine Christianity, as you hear the gospel here, you see Paul saying, look, the centre has shifted. It's no more movable out there. You don't just decide. I'll tell you how we make decisions here. The place from which we decide things is this. It is in the framework of being united. We are in Christ. That is the truth, that I'm in Christ and it changes the playbook for how I make decisions with my work and my life and my family and my relationships. And if we just drill down into community right here, Christian community, not even just here, not maybe in the wider, but just us here, 
And we flicked back to chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. And Paul is saying, look, there is a unity here. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles being reconciled into, into Christ. This dividing wall of hostility being done because the gospel provides a new foundation and a new understanding of each other. And he's saying the spiritual reality of unity must have visible results. Has to. Otherwise, you can see that your centre of your thinking has not shifted at all. Because we say that we have been forgiven deeply and truly by Jesus, but we hold back on those who have wronged us, then what we see is we haven't quite understood forgiveness. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's an indication that hasn't quite been the shift that Paul's saying there needs to be. Let's move on to the second bit. Verses 7 to 12 here. Because the second thing Paul says is that it's hard, but actually God's people have been given the resources that we need for unity. The resources that we need for unity. There's nothing worse than not having the right tools to do the job. I've often thought to myself, I would be a master carpenter if I just had the right tools. Now that's not true because I struggle to put together IKEA things. Um, but... The reality is even simple jobs are hard when you don't have the right tools, aren't they? Simple jobs are hard when you don't have the right tools. Now this bit in 7 to 12, Mike and I had a good discussion about this and I've read a whole number of commentaries and very few of them agree, to be honest, with this tricky part in verses 7 to 12. There's a number of ways it could go. The details, which we'll have a look at in a second, um, can be hazy, but his general point is clear. He's saying, by grace, the body is gifted what it needs for unity and maturity. That's the big picture. Now, if we slowly delve into the details here, we see that Paul quotes in verse 7, this uh, Psalm 68. Now, you can read that later and it'd be good to go back and read that. It's quite a long psalm. But what we see in Psalm 68 there is a picture of a triumphant king who comes and scatters and conquers his enemies, who returns triumphant with the spoils of war. That picture of uh, the, the ancient Roman rulers, they'd go and conquer and bring back the spoils of war and their enemies would be in their train. That's Psalm 68, that God is the conquering hero. He will not let enemies stand in his way. He will be victorious. And Paul quotes that here in Ephesians 4. And here there's a few differences, even while he draws on that imagery. Here is a triumphant king, yes, Christ, who conquered death. Here's a, a, a God who takes his enemies who are far away and instead of just wiping them out, he draws them near and makes him his children. Who ascends to the throne and then shares the spoils of his victory with those who used to be his enemies. Now, as I've grappled with this and tried to understand it, uh, and I, I feel like often I'm someone who just likes to sit on the fence as opposed to making decisions with things. I think, I feel like Paul's got an eye to two things here. So I apologize for hedging my bets. You can read it. And I think you're doing this in growth groups this week, Bible studies this week. Yep. You've done it. Okay. Well, you've got the answer. Uh, all right. This is awkward, isn't it? I'm going to tell you what, what I think, uh, Paul's saying. I suspect he's probably got an eye to a couple of things. You know, I think Paul's, at one level, Paul's probably saying, look, he's got his eye to Jesus' ascension, 
That is the end of the Gospels where Jesus goes up to heaven after the resurrection. And then what descends in Acts 2? Can you remember what descends in Acts 2 at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. Yep. And when Paul is writing Ephesians, often there are points in which he interchanges the work of Christ uh, with the work of the Spirit. So Ephesians chapter 13, 4.30, 3.16, 3.17. There's a whole number of places which he interchanges those things. Now, I think that's probably there. I don't think that's the whole story, though. And I don't think that quite fits with verse 11 and 12 entirely. Because I think primarily what he's got is an eye to the way in which this new community, each of the people that God has drawn in, given a new heart to, how he has equipped those within there to play a role in the whole. Not just give them gifts in order that they might be built up individually, but how their gifts fit within the whole. And Paul seems to de- deliberately tweak this to draw our eyes to the fact that, that Christ not only brings unity, but then gives his people the tools to be able to express it. And that's where he goes in verse 11 and 12, isn't it? Christ gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now he doesn't mention all the gifts here and if you look in Romans 12 or you look in 1 Corinthians 12 which are other places where Paul talks about gifts doesn't mention all the gifts there here but here he hones in on the gifts that Christ gives the church the teaching gifts the ability to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on the lives of the people so that they are equipped so that the word is amongst them and they can speak it to one another and understand the implications so that the body is built up. That's the purpose of the gifts giving here. It is to build up the body. It is not for the self-fulfillment of the individual. These gifts are not for the glory of you or the glory of me. They are what? For verse 12, the preparation of the saints. They're to equip the people for works of service. They are for the building up of the body of Christ. That is the reason that Christ gives his church for the good of the whole. And you can see two pretty clear implications from that here. The first is this, and this is all throughout the New Testament, every time it talks about the body. The first one is this, You cannot say that you have nothing to contribute if you are in the body of Christ. I had my appendix out a whole number of years ago. I started off, it was when I was about 13. I didn't want to go to school the next day. Had a slight pain in my tummy, so I just hemmed it up a little bit. Uh, Turns out actually it was my appendix. Uh, So that was good. So parents, if your kids are acting, you've just got to let them have a number of days off school. But kids, if you are acting, you're going to have to have surgery um, for that. So... Uh, so I, I remember having my appendix out. Now I'm okay having my appendix out. I don't think it does anything. Every now and then you see a story saying, we've discovered what the appendix does. I don't think anyone really knows. But you can live without it. There are no appendixes in the body of Christ. None. God puts you here for the good of the whole. He gives people differently for the good of the whole. So some people sit here and do this and that is not more important than someone doing something else it is just different 
So you cannot say, when you read the New Testament, you understand how God brings people together, that I am not important. No. No, that is never the case. That is never the case. You are here to build up the body, as I am here to build up the body, as the person next to you is here to build up the body. You cannot say you've got nothing to contribute. Here's a second implication from that. You can't sit on what you've got. You cannot sit on what you've got. Because if you hold back, what happens? What's the implication? Well, Paul would say the body is not built up. That the body somehow misses out on you not engaging. On you not using the things that God has given you for the good of those around you. So first, you can't say you've got nothing to contribute. That's, the Bible would say that's just untrue. Not true. And second, you can't sit on what you've got. Because it detracts from the body as a whole. Here's the third thing. Verses 13 to 16. Christians have a goal for their unity. They have a goal for their unity. Um, uh, where I used to work, um, again, there was a, a community hall down the road where I live in Brisbane, community hall, and um, a group meets there. We used to walk past all the time. They had, I used to try and time my walk past so that I could hear the song they sang at the start. It was great. It sounded like the Port Adelaide Power song, actually. Um, uh, yes, yes, I went and saw them the other night. Um, and that, uh, I was a great game, but uh, the seats we had managed to be the furthest seats right up the back of the stadium. Um, and so I had to go on the lift, and uh, I'm sure we could have got close to seats, but Mike said it was good for me just to, to, uh, to do that. Anyway, the, this community hall I used to go past, I used to have this song, and they used to meet together, and someone I knew went there, and I never quite, well, I, I knew the name of the group, and so I thought I had a picture of what they were supposed to do, but I don't think he did. Um, so he just turned up one day and he was doing stuff around, they invited him, he ended up becoming a part of the group, so he'd go and sit up with them, uh, he'd uh, listen to the talks and he'd love the talks and, uh, and he'd eat morning tea afterwards. Uh, the group is called Healthy Slimmers and so the morning tea afterwards was these big cupcakes with icing and things afterwards. I was like, not quite, sure. anyway, doesn't, that's not the problem. You know, he would be in this community and he loved being there. But I think if you asked him, you know, what do they do? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's just like being there. I like the people. I like what I hear from the front. I like being involved. I like doing stuff. They didn't know why they were there. You know, some of you think that's good. It's good that he's connecting with people. But part of me wants to say, well, there's got to be goal, doesn't it? It's got to be a purpose, particularly when you invest, if you invest your life in it. There's got to be an end point that you're driving to. Now you get to verse 13 here, and it seems like an arbitrary breakup here, but it's here that Paul identifies three goals that he, he kind of unpacks. The three goals, first one is this in verse 13. Let me just read it, and then we'll come to three. He says, I'll start from verse 12. To equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Three goals he identifies here for God's people, this community. First, that we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, Jesus. That is, a shared understanding of 
what Jesus has done, who he is to us, the impact it has on our lives now, and the impact it has in the future and into eternity. Together. Not just as an individual, but together. And if you get down to verse 14, you'll see the danger that he's trying to get people to avoid here. That without a solid foundation of Jesus, you will be buffeted around by a world that is unconcerned about Jesus, that is hesitant about what he's done, that is sceptical about who he is, just not enamored in any way by being called to him. Paul's goal is to reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus. That is this truth. So we would not be buffeted around by the ideas that are thrown at us from people who do not know Jesus. Now, it's, well, my guess is it's exactly the same in Adelaide as it is in Brisbane, as it is everywhere around Australia at the moment, that for Christians, the world feels like it's closing in. My views, just as a Christian, are less popular. I think I'm a reasonably easygoing person, but I feel increasingly, particularly with my siblings who aren't Christians, that I'm being pushed to the edges. I'm being pigeonholed. I feel stupid often for the strange things that I believe and say and decisions I make. And to the people who don't know Jesus, it just looks strange. I get that. So if I was to say, look, yeah, I believe that God became a man, his name was Jesus, and that happened through virgin birth, that he grew, he was crucified in my place, that he died on the third day, he rose again, he appeared to people, then he ascended into heaven, he seated at the right hand of God, and that he gives me his spirit, makes my heart new, he lives in me, that he will come back at some point in the future and take me to be with him and give me a new body so that I don't have to deal with his stupid Achilles heel anymore and that I still talk to him today. Now, if I said that to people here, my, I'm not going to do that. If I was to take a straw poll, my guess would be most of you would agree with what I've just said there. That's my gut feeling. We're in a church. I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty safe at this point today. But I was down at Golden Grove Shopping Centre yesterday if I took a straw poll there, just survey of people around there, how many do you reckon? What percentage of people do you reckon would agree with everything I've just said there? My guess is, my guess is, two, possibly three percent. Possibly. You know, the, these are the central truths which Christians believe. But, they sound strange when we say them out loud to a world that is hostile to us. But Paul says, you, you have to hold on to these things. This is what we drive at unity in these truths. You stray from them, you become easy pickings. Easy pickings. It's just like pulling on one thread. Just keep going. There's a book called Knowing God, which was really formative for me by J.I. Packer when I was growing up. And he said, Every morning when he gets up, he reminds himself of these five things. He said, I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother and every Christian is my brother and sister too. Those five, six truths. Every day he reminds himself. And he goes on to say, I've got some questions that I ask myself to diagnose whether 
that foundation that I say is there is popping up in the life in my life. You know, do I understand my adoption? Do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of what it looks like to be God's child and the privilege of that? Do, do I daily dwell on the love of God? Do I treat him as my father in heaven? Do I love him and honour him and obey him? Do I think of Jesus Christ, my saviour, as my brother too? Someone who bore my sin and walks alongside me, who has my future sewn up? Just those diagnostic questions. And I want to say they're good questions to ask, but they're not questions we should ask alone. These are questions we ask together. Because these truths that it is by grace we've been saved through faith it's not from ourselves, this is a gift of God, so that no one can boast. These truths shape our character deeply, they shape how we see the world, it shapes how we engage with the world, it shapes how we love the world and stand up against the world. And we should not ask them alone, we should be asking them together. This is why God brings his people together, to remind one another. And Paul says it's the role of those who teach, the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, to bring the word to the people, but it is our job as a community to what? Verse 15, speak the truth in love so that we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. There's no word for for speaking in the original here in that verse 15. So really it just reads, you need to be truthing in love, truthing in love to one another. Truth and love, they're the key ideas here. That is a community that will hold to the truth so as not to be, verse 14, blown about by every wind of teaching. Yet at the same time, live that truth out in such a way that it reflects truth itself in ways that are, verse 2, humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love. An old Irishman called Robert Murray McShane who puts it like this, he says, truth without love lacks its proper environment and loses its persuasive power. Love without truth forfeits its identity degenerating into some maudlin sentiment without solidity, feeling without principle. You need both. You need truth and love. Truth and love to achieve maturity. Here's Paul's second goal. This is a quick one. Second goal is this, that he longs for all the Ephesians to grow to maturity together. Not just by themselves, but together. Spiritual infants, that's what he's worried about. People who know Jesus, but who haven't been able to join the dots between the truth of the gospel and the ways it plays out, that's what he's worried about. Now we're saved through faith. As famously said, we are saved by faith, but that faith that saves is not alone. And so it needs to be shown in the life of God's people. Now, uh, where, how it is uh, that Paul describes it here, this being blown, tossed back and forth by the waves, it is his fear that we would be so swayed from the truth that it would have no impact on how we live. People who claim to follow Jesus, but who pursue the things of this world, and sometimes who use the context of the church to do it, who pursue positions of power, to exploit others, who claim to understand grace but then sit in judgment on others. Paul says that's not maturity. That's not maturity at all. Maturity is is achieved as we live together, talk the truth together and play it out. 
not in isolation. You don't go off into a mountain as some self-centered, self-righteous, know-it-all goose and then somehow magically pop down the other side as some whole, complete, full, mature person, gracious and kind and humble. If that was the case, I would be sending all my children up that mountain and just waiting. It's not, is it? That's not how we form. That is not how we form character. No, you do it in the cauldron of community. You can see that body language that Paul uses here in verses 12 and 15 and 16. Christians are joined whether they like it or not. Christ is the head and the whole body grows and builds itself up. How? Not by retreating into isolationism. No, it grows as each person within the body exercises their gifts in love for the building up of those around them. It's community. We realize It's in community we realise the depth of our brokenness, that we experience forgiveness and love, that we understand how painful reconciliation is. And in that we get a glimpse of what it looks like for God to deal with us. Maturity does not come in isolation. And by God's good design, there is no one who is not a part of building up the body in love. I need you for maturity. You need each other for maturity. Here's Paul's third goal. That is in verse 13, he says, to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You remember back in 3.19 where Paul prayed that they would be filled to the measure of the fullness of Christ? Well, Paul's hope here and his goal for the Ephesians is not just that they'd be mature, but in God's good grace, they would eventually look like the one they're being built into. Not giving up when they feel like they've hit a socially acceptable point. Now I'm not the most awkward or ungodly person in the room. No, no. He says you've got to manage the tension whereby you acknowledge your shortcomings, but don't get slipping down into depression. But we drive each other towards grace, even as we see our shortcomings. All of life is repentance, Martin Luther said. All of life. And this is where Paul is going with the rest of the letter. Take the truths of the gospel, start laying out the implications for those things in our lives and how we live together. That is a step towards maturity and toward that end goal of attaining the full measure of Christ. All right, two quick things as we finish off here. Just some final thoughts on, on this, uh, these verses as a whole. First, if you are someone who's here and uh, you're not a Christian and you're kind of looking in at, at strange people and strange guys who stra- say strange things like he talks to people he can't see, can I say, if you're looking in from the outside, to start considering what it is that's keeping you on the outside, if that's where you feel you are. You're not sure about Jesus, not sure about stepping too much into community. You might even be a Christian and you still feel like you're out on the outside and that's where you want to be. Not sure about being vulnerable with people you don't know very well, how that's going to be received. What happens if you share things that people are, you know, you cross a line that you didn't know about. Not sure about showing your warts. Can I say, look, if a Christian community pretends to be perfect, you can be sure they do not understand the depths of their sin. You can be absolutely sure. They do not understand the depths of their sin. But if you're in a Christian community and it never matures, it never moves, no one ever goes anywhere, you can be absolutely sure they do not understand the grace of God in Christ. You can be absolutely sure. No, no, can I say, step in. 
you're a Christian, there's a biblical call from God to be part of God's people. Because we need you and you need us. No man, no woman is a rock. Step in. If you're not a Christian, can I say what you should see is not perfection, but you'll see repentance and you'll see forgiveness and you'll see reconciliation and you'll see grace and love and kindness and humility because those are the things that God's people should be nurturing and driving towards. Here's the last thing. We have to stop individualising God's work. Stop thinking this is just about what God is doing in me. It's not an untrue statement, but it's not the whole statement. It's not us. It's us, sorry. It's not just you. Sorry, Jack, I didn't mean to point to you then. It, it isn't just Jack, but it is Jack and everyone. Now, that goes against the grain of our individualistic society where we're heading. You know, Australia not only is uh, church attendance on the whole declining significantly, um, so since 1991 to 2011, uh, there was a decline in 1,000 churches closed in Australia. So there's 12,000 Protestant denominations in Australia in 2011. That was the stats. Um, my suspicion is that has dropped off even more significantly when we finally get the stats of where it is. So not only is there a decline in attendance, so the closing of churches, there's also a decline in the number of times Christians, people who say they're Christians, go to church. So it used to be, I remember, you know, my parents were very, very impressive, dragging me, kicking and screaming out of bed in the morning. Um, and so we would go every week. doesn't matter if there was a cyclone outside the door. My parents would drag me, just say, put a stronger jumper on, and they would drag me out. But now the, the statistics say, well, actually, no, probably between one and a half and two in four weeks if, in a month would be the normal amount people would go. It's hard to get exact stats on that. Now, look, we live under grace. I want to say we live under grace, and I know this is painful. Sunday is often the only morning which you don't, you feel like you don't necessarily have to get out of bed. Sunday morning, Saturday morning, sport with the boys, it's a fight. The rest of the time you work. I know what it's like to lie in bed on Sunday morning and think, no one will miss me. No one will miss This is too warm. If I wait long enough, Jacqueline will get up before me and she might make a coffee and she'll bring it to me. You know, I know what that's like. Not that Jacqueline would bring you a coffee, but, you know, it's that sense of thinking, oh, I'm, you know, it's malleable. They don't need me. No one's going to really miss me for one week. I live under grace. Life is so busy. There is so much on. It's getting harder, though, to hear God's word in this world and live faithfully in a society that thinks it's irrelevant which means it makes it all the more important to gather with people who are like-minded to remind you of these eternal truths. So when Luke writes Acts, he keeps using phrases when he talks to the church about together, common assent. They get together, they are one mind and tangible demonstrations. They unite in prayer, they're together for worship, they eat together. Not to the exclusion of loving those outside, but just because they needed to remind each other of the truth. There's a sense that they're heavily invested in each other's lives. Now this is, I'm not saying, you know, you know, we need to start drawing a graph of our attendance. That's not what I'm saying. 
What I am saying is we need to consider where it, what it place it plays in our lives. John Carson describes church like this. He says, look, the church is made up of natural enemies. And what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of the sort. Christians come together because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You're not going to like everyone in the room. That's okay. In fact, I think I want to say that's probably good for you. It's probably good for you. We need thick community. We need genuine relationships. We need to strive for a, and model those things which we have experienced in God in Christ where we seek forgiveness from one another when we do wrong, where we put ourselves in relationships and make ourselves vulnerable so that other people know that we are not perfect and we know they're not either, where we offer forgiveness, don't hold on to grudges, remember how much we've been forgiven, where we invite, invite other people into our lives and into our families just as God has done for us. We encourage each other to hold true to the, the gospel itself, to push that into each other's lives, to speak the truth in love, not just for our growth, but for theirs and for those who do not yet know Jesus. So they might see something different here. Jesus longed that believers' spiritual unity would be demonstrated in the actions of their lives and their hearts and their minds and their decisions and the way in which we engage here. A new community, a new humanity. So Paul says, those who are in Christ should walk together with lives that are worthy of the calling they've received. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are a God who has not called us to individualism, but you have called us into a family, your body. Father, we pray and we know how hard it is at points to open ourselves to other people in the busyness of life, in the nervousness of rejection, in the anxiety that we find sometimes in past hurts and past relationships. Father, we pray at these points that we would stop and remember and dwell on the goodness that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ, your love and your forgiveness there. Father, we know we won't get this right. But you have given us your spirit and you would gifted us as a body and drawn us together. So, Father, we pray that you would help Golden Grove here, this church, to build one another up in love. And so that those who are not here yet, who don't know Jesus, may look upon these people and see humility and love and generosity and kindness and be directed towards Jesus. Amen.